If you would, take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 92. Psalm 92, Psalm 4 today. I'm going to ask you a question. Maybe there's a few people that can, um, well, we all get the answer, but maybe there's a few people that um, truly are just um, here this morning and they're, they, they're saying, um, man, I just need one more thing to do in my life. Um, maybe there's a few. My guess, though, is that if I asked you to raise your hands and said, hey, you know, um, how many of you just, you know, you, you're really like, your hope this week is like, you know, one more thing, you need one more thing on your schedule, maybe two or three more things, and you just, you just don't know what to do with all the time that you have. And so you came this morning and you're asking God, God, like, give me more things to do. And that oftentimes is our attitude when we think about um, observing the Lord's Day, observing the Sabbath. We think, well, wait a minute. We take this as, as a burden. Like, God, you're, you're telling me that I need to do this command. The command, by the way, is a command to rest. Um, it is a reflection on the goodness of God and his character. It is exalting God. Um, but we look at it as we are burdened by it. Um, and it is the exact opposite of what it is meant to be. Um, it is something that is going to add another thing to your list. But what if this one thing to your list all of a sudden snapped all the other things into place and gave them purpose? What if this one thing to do, this additional thing to do, um, actually caused you to realize that you can cross off one or five or 15 other things and just say, nah, I'm not going to do them. I'm going to actually make room. That is really what the exaltation of Jesus, which is the purpose of the Lord's Day, does in our lives. It tends to just straighten and snap all the other things right into place. And, uh, and it gives us, yes, the, it's a command. Um, but what it does is it is a command that clarifies it's a command that clarifies. What we're going to see in the scriptures is it's a command that actually teaches us how to think. Right? The observation of Sabbath, the observation of a one in seven, 24-hour day to exalt Jesus, where that is the primary focus of our hearts, our thinking, of our habits, um, that that actually forms and shapes us. It, it teaches us how to think. In fact, um, this is, um, in the scripture, you know, I, sometimes I, I will say a bad word in church, but this word is actually in our text. It keeps us from being stupid, right? So kids, as you're reading this text, you may say the word stupid. You can't call your sibling stupid unless they're not obeying God. That's what the text says. Anyone who is not obeying God, especially in the exaltation of Jesus, in this habit of one in seven, 24 hours, the Bible calls them stupid and calls them foolish. So there's something, this is something amazingly cognitive. Look, and what, it, what it's saying is that we actually are not wise people. We don't know how life works. We don't know what all the to-dos are for on our list. And what do we find? We find anxiety in our lives rising, right? Um, and, um, and, and struggle, 
But what God has put in place is he has given us a command that is an amazing command. Why? Because it is for his glory and it is for our good. So I pray, even as I'm speaking here, my heart is praying for all of us that we will consider obedience to the goodness of God this morning. Let's read the text um, this morning, Psalm 92, um, an exaltation um, of Jesus the King. Psalm 92, it begins, and this is part of the inspired text, a psalm, a song for the Sabbath. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night, to the music of the lute and the harp, to the melody of the lyre. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands, I sing for joy. How great are your works, O Lord, Your thoughts are very deep. The stupid man cannot know, the fool cannot understand this, that though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. For behold, your enemies, O Lord, are bef- be- uh, for behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered. But you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. You have poured over me fresh oil. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. The righteousness, the righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green. To declare that the Lord is upright. He is my God and there is no unrighteousness in him. This is the word of the Lord. So you'll notice at the very beginning it is a psalm for the Sabbath. A psalm for the for the Sabbath. But yet you'll notice in the text there that the Sabbath is not mentioned in the rest of the text. And that's because this is giving us not just I think a description but a prescription. A prescription for the Sabbath, um, for the Lord's Day, a prescription for our heart for the Lord's Day. The context of this psalm is an amazing context. Really, for the context of the psalm, and we don't have the time to do it, but um, it would enrich you to go back and to really compare this particular psalm and look at the parallels to Psalm 1 and 2. Some of them are very, very clear. We'll note those. Um, But there are some amazing parallels um, to this particular psalm. And so um, there is a context to the opening pillars of the collection of psalms, Psalms 1 and 2. Um, Here, what we see, though, in in the progression of the psalms, um, in the ending of book 3 in Psalm 89, you had the, um, the destruction or the cutting off of the house of David. 
And, and so there, there is Psalm, book three ends on, there's this, it's hopeful, we, we, we taught on it, it's hopeful, but you see this very dark time. And then you have Psalm 90, which Psalm 90 is a, is a mosaic psalm. It's Moses now in the same way that he interceded for the people of Israel when God said he would destroy them. Psalm 90 is the intercession of Moses, Moses the, the rescuer. And so he intercedes on the behalf of God's people. Psalm 91 then describes the promised king um, from David's line, the one who will tread on the serpent, the one who will destroy the lion, the one who is the conqueror over all. And Psalm 92, the psalm that we're in, celebrates. It's a psalm of celebration. It celebrates the Lord's faithfulness and truth, his loving kindness and his loyalty. And so Psalm 92, that's why Psalm 92 goes back and restates Psalm 1 and 2 and the promises of God. And you can see that gospel progression um, from Psalm 89 to 92, that man is in deep despair and sin, and God has made a promise, and the promised one comes, and he treads on the serpent, he kills the lion, and now there is Psalm 92, there's a promise that is fulfilled in Psalm 91, and now there is rest and celebration, Psalm 92. And so that's the progression, and that's where we find ourselves um, in Psalm 92, this psalm of exaltation. So here's, here's the outline. We'll put it up behind me here. That God is exalted for his loving kindness in truth. Um, so this psalm, um, as, um, as many of the psalms are, the top and the bottom are paralleled and they work towards a main idea in the middle. Um, if you, you do like I, I do in the, um, in the middle of the psalm, it is verse 8. That is the main point of this psalm. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. That on high means exalted. And so that's why I've chosen the, that word for our outline because it really um, puts forth the, the main thrust of the entire psalm is to exalt Jesus on high. So God is exalted um, for God's loving kindness and his truth, in verses 1 through 3, God is exalted for his works and counsels, verses 4 and 5. God is exalted in that the wicked are judged before him, verses 6 through 9. God is exalted um, for he is the anointed triumphant horn, verses 10 and 11. And then God is exalted by God's people flourishing in worship 12 through 15. So let's look at God's loving kindness and truth, how they call us to rest. They call us to rest. Creation and redemption um, in the series of Psalms in book four are a theme, and we see creation and redemption here. Um, what does God do in creation and redemption? Well, we have, we have the days of creation, six days, God acts. And then what does he do? He rests. And he commands us to rest. In fact, he, he's placed that order in the order of creation. Um, that it is good. Six days we should labor and do all of our work. And on the seventh day um, is a day of rest unto the Lord. It's a day of exaltation of God. Um, we see that in creation. In redemption, what does Jesus do? He comes and he inhabits a human body. He is perfect and righteous. 
Um, He goes and does all that the Father called him to do and all that the Father called him to accomplish. And he dies for our sins and he rises again. He ascends into heaven. And what is he doing now? He is seated at the right hand of the Father. He sits down um, in rule and reign. There is a resting. There's a resting. Now, we know that his work continues. We know that he does certain things for us even in his place at the right hand of God the Father, but he is in a place of rest. So in creation and redemption, we see that these acts are followed by rest. Um, Psalm 95, just over the page in, in, in verse 11, um, we see that the, the goal of redemption, we recited this this morning, verse 11 of Psalm 95, the goal of redemption is rest in God. It says, therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And so you have a people that are rebellious from God, of rebellion, in rebellion against God. And so what are they? They are extremely anxious all the time because they have not found rest in God. We see that the deliverance and triumph of Psalm 91 are completed here in Psalm 92 in the contemplation of God's work in rest. So what we have when you look at this particular psalm as God calls us um, by his loving kindness and his truth to rest, the entire psalm is a contemplation of the work of God while the people of God take a posture of rest, ease, not our work, but his work is described here. God's loving kindness, his truth, they call us to rest. Exalting God's loving kindness and truth are good. They are good. It's good for our hearts. It is certainly good for worship. It is good for all humanity. Verse 1 is the psalming of the name of God. It affirms the command of Sabbath, that Sabbath is good and right and not a burden to us. The the praising and psalming spoken in in verse 1 um, is made very specific in verse 2 in this, that kind of X or hourglass, or chi- it's called a chiasm, chiastic structure. Um, you see in verse 2, it begins to declare in the morning, it ends at in the nights. There's your top and tail, the beginning and end. And in the middle is to declare your loving kindness. That is the steadfast love, that Hesed covenant love. That's the word used to describe there. And your faithfulness, the Hebrew word is emet. It means truth, truth, the truth of God. So his covenant loving kindness that is sure, the promise and the truth of God. It's, it is the, the psalming of his name that in the morning all the way through the day till the, till the nightfall, um, is that that is the time in which we are to exalt the name of God? It, this this very this verse echoes Psalm or I'm sorry, Exodus thirty four verses six and seven that say says this: The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, "The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness." keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, 
visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And we see that proclaiming this, this steadfast love, this covenant love for God echoes that covenant that he made. In fact, we could summarize it in this, that um, salvation through judgment brings the glory of God. Or there's the glory of God in judgment that brings salvation. Um, this theme of salvation through judgment to the glory of God is one of the central themes in all of Scripture. I think actually it's the central theme that Paul writes the epistle to the Romans, that God is bringing his glory by salvation through judgment. And that theme rings over and over again. It's an explanation. Romans, the entire book of Romans, is an explanation, a commentary on Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. And so we, we, we see here that we are to actually enter into, enter into that rest. If you want to stay, it's fine. Nobody minds. Yeah, we're, we're all good, right? Don't, you don't have to go. Uh, so verse 3 is the accompaniment. I mean, if you want to, you can, but you don't need to go. So if you do get up and go, don't be embarrassed now that I've embarrassed you. Sorry. It's like, oh, I got to sit down now. Called me out. We're family in here. This is good. Okay. So verse 3 is the music that accompanies the, this particular psalm. It, it says, to the music of the lute and the harp and the melody of the lyre. It was meant to be sung. This is the song of the Sabbath. And so um, this was the, the song that was to be sung from nightfall the day before till um, nightfall the day of the Lord. This 24 hours beginning the night before and ending the night of the Sabbath. I think that's a great rhythm for you to think about um, Sabbathing and think about giving glory to God, that Sabbath starts on Saturday night. And we do have to get ready for Monday morning. And so that can begin, you know, on Sunday night. And, and so it's nightfall to nightfall that the music of the Sabbath um, ought to be played. So we see this, this, um, this psalm is this Sabbath song. And, and I, th I think we can apply this, this first point in a number of different ways. Um, it's commanded. And what we see here is that God's law is good and it is right. And the exaltation of Jesus as something more to do, another thing to do, is, is good and right. We, we ought to do it. It's a command, but it's not a burden. We, we honor this command because we honor God, because we honor Jesus, not because we honor the Sabbath. That's really important to hear. We, we honor the Sabbath because we honor Jesus, not because we honor the Sabbath. You see, that, that's where we get things all wrong, right? Oh, I got to go to church. Well, no, you don't. <laughs> you don't have to go to church. But it is good to exalt Jesus. And so even though sometimes our hearts are like, I don't want to do this, we ought to bring our minds and our bodies, and then our hearts will follow, to exalt Jesus by doing what he commands. Because it's good and it's right. 
I would say this, that the exaltation of Jesus is good for everyone. I think thinking about Sabbath is a good way to think about all the commands of God. Um, We tend to be very much New Testament people because of that. We don't do well at explaining and applying the commands in the Old Testament. And the Sabbath principle is a good command. It's still a good command. And when we enter the eternal state, it's not like, oh, all of that old stuff in the Old Testament has gone away. No, this is, the, this is good and will continue, right? All these things that God uses to shape his people will continue on forever, and so when we think about this Sabbath command, we, we ought to, as Christians, think, well, this is good for humanity. Therefore, it is really good that Chick-fil-A is closed on Sunday. Is there an amen? I know. How many times have you, like, let's go to Chick-fil-A? Oh, it's Sunday. Taco Bell. Well, if, see, if we really believe the Bible and we believe that God's commands are good and that he is the rescuer, then we, we ought to believe that every store ought to be closed and every restaurant ought to be closed on Sunday, right? And if we, so this gives us a way of thinking about things. So, but it's really important because we get mixed up on these things because then all of a sudden we start honoring the Sabbath rather than exalting Jesus, And we need to think about what are the things that are good to exalt Jesus? What has God commanded? What are the tools that he has given to us? Well, if they're good for Christians, then they're good for the world, right? And so as we we now apply these things, we ought to show the world, demonstrate to the world that this is a good thing, but we also ought to call the world to God's good standard, and there's something, because it's embedded in creation, I could, you know, we could spend a lot of time right here and we could say, well, look, this, is, this particular command to exalt Jesus as Christians is so embedded in the fabric of humanity that it is good for nature and it's good for economics. It's, it is good for family systems. It is restorative to the body. It's all of these things. But yet most households, and I would say um, even congregations, oftentimes look more like the consumer world that is 24 hours a day, seven days a week, always on, and Sunday is no different. Now, it doesn't help us simply to start at a whole bunch of rules. Where does the psalm start? Verse 1, a psalm, a song of the Sabbath, it is good to give thanks to the Lord. It starts at Jesus. It starts at Jesus. It's good to give thanks to him. You know, we can begin to apply this to our lives simply by not being embarrassed to praise the name of Jesus, right? We we ought not to say, well, we don't do these things on Sunday because it's good for humanity, or it's good economically, people need to rest, don't you need a break, it's good for your anxious heart. What ought to be on our lips is we do these things because we love to exalt Jesus. 
And even though, even when we don't love to exalt Jesus, it's become second nature to us because we have been habituated into it that automatically we do it and then we know it's good sometimes that happens that way. It's good to exalt Jesus. See, this is the gospel, right? This is the kind of the, this is the good news is that God gets glory and then there's all of these derivative blessings because he has created the world, the cosmos and us and everything in it for his glory and his exaltation. Um, What we see is that in this psalm, we see that we learn and there's a prescription for learning. Um, We use the word pedagogy. Pedagogy is simply this. It is the science of teaching. Um, if If you're involved in teaching, then you have thought about these things. How do we help people learn? How do we learn? We see here in the psalm that, yes, truth is declared cognitively, but then there is the formation of the heart in liturgy. This is a psalm. It's a song. It's meant to be sung. How many songs have you memorized? I have a daughter who's committed Spotify to memory. It's like you can just go on there and play a song, and oh, she knows the lyrics. It's, I mean, it freaks me out. <laughs> There's something about this that it's teaching our heart and our, we, we, that it's a song, we, we sing it, but it's not just a song, it is a weekly habit. It is a, um, a resting from labor. It's this weekly habit, and it is the liturgy of the Sabbath. It is also entering into worship. Um, so we see that we see this cognitive truth being declared about God, but we see that the truth is embedded in this habituation, this liturgy, in a number of different ways. Um, and we also see that it is a discipline. Um, it is commanded. It's commanded. It's a command. And sometimes we just need to obey because it's commanded. Um, also, we see in verses 4 and 5 that there is punishment and reward. It makes us glad. But verse 6, if we don't do it, we're stupid. You know, there's, there's definitely a punishment like, for not doing it. Um, life will become confusing. And so here we see this, the, the, the biblical nature of pedagogy, the science of teaching. It involves all of these things um, to embed this information about who God is and to then not just simply embed information, because that is oftentimes what we do, but to transform and elicit a response of praise. Second, um, we, we see, first we see that God is exalted for his, um, God is exalted for his loving kindness and truth. And secondly, God is exalted for his works. Verses four and five, it says, for you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands, I sing for joy. How great are your works, O Lord. Your thoughts are very deep. Now, we are called to exalt God, exalt God because God works and keeps his word. He fulfills his promises to his people. The psalmist here celebrates God's work, which he mentions three times with two different terms, which have produced praise, the praise that's described in verses 1 through 3. In Exodus 23, verses 12, he calls Israel to rest from their work on the Sabbath. And this is a song for the the Sabbath. Verse 12 of Exodus 23 says, Six days you shall do all your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, 
that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. So this is everybody, right? He's saying this is good for the world. It's good for creation that this happens. Verse 1 celebrates um, God's work. Um, Verse 4 presents um, this very sentiment in another one of those hourglass or chiastic structures. Um, Look at verse 4. It says, For you gladden me, O Yahweh. And then later it says, I will give a ringing cry. And in the middle it says, By your work, at the works of your hands. So here we, we, we see the content for the song of the Sabbath is to, verse 1, it is good to give thanks to the Lord. What are we giving him thanks for? For the things that he has done in creation and in redemption. To look around. Oh, it's true that the Psalms say that all creation sings the praise of our glorious God. And in redemption, the work of Jesus, the same that Jesus and who he has done. And so, so these days, the Lord's Day, Sunday, is a time to recount our blessings. It's to climb up into the tower of God's grace and survey the landscape. And if we don't, that's the next section. If we don't, we become dim. We become dim. Um, th- third point, God is exalted in that the wicked are judged before him like chaff in the wind. Look at the stupid man cannot know. The fool cannot understand this. That though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. Does this make you think of another psalm? Psalm 73, where the, where the psalmist um, is wondering um, through Psalm 73, Um, He starts out, truly, truly, God is good to Israel, to all those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet almost stumbled, my steps nearly slipped. I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And then he says that he went into the sanctuary of God. And it was only then in verse 17 that he discerns their end. And he concludes that, that psalm, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire but you. He went into worship. And what did God do to his heart and his desires? He changed them. Transformed them. He understands that the wicked are like grass. And, and what happens to um, the human heart when we do not recount who God is and all that he, he has done, we become dim and foolish. We don't know how to live life. Right? So think about it, friends. You're here today. It's not prag- I'm not trying to be pragmatic here, but this next week will be better because you were here today. Do you think that worship is simply about the exchange of information? I- I'm not about to give you anything new this morning. I am not saying anything creative, new, groundbreaking, I mean, it's groundbreaking in the sense that it is the revelation of God, but this same thing has been taught and much better for thousands of years. It's not new. It is not new, but you are being transformed. Your week, this week, will be better because you honored God and you exalted God by your presence here in worship. 
God is doing something to you so that you are not dim and foolish, but rather you are enlightened by the wisdom of the word of God. That's what happens when we transform this building of brick and mortar and electric and whatever all the things that go into it into the living sanctuary of God inhabited by God's people and the Holy Spirit comes in and Jesus here dwells with us in a miraculous way in one hour every week. That's that's what the psalmist is saying. You're gaining wisdom. You see, right in the middle of this, look look at um, verse, he says, Behold your enemies, O Lord, verse 9, for behold, your enemies shall perish, all evildoers shall be scattered. Right in between the fools and the enemies is what? Jesus the King. You, O Lord, are on high forever. You think about this. You know, by all statistical measures, Christianity is dimming in America today. Um, COVID has wreaked havoc. Um, smaller churches, especially, are getting smaller. Um, larger ones um, continue to do different things, but overall, some are growing, some are not. Overall, um, Christianity is on a rapid downward slide in the United States. And we might bemoan that, oh, you know. But wait a minute. Look at around the world. Do you realize there are more Christians on the face of this planet than there have ever been in the history of humanity? And in many places, Christianity overall, overall, is growing. It's growing. You know, the Olympic Games have started right? Celebrating the freedom and flourishing of humanity in a totalitarian police state. (laughs) It's crazy, isn't it? I I think I could not help but think about that when I read verses six through nine. Here you have, you know, the world celebrating something and they're confused about what Types of people should compete in which games. They can't figure all of that out, right? If that's not stupid and foolish, right? But yet it's in that same nation that Christianity is on fire and growing. It's amazing, right? And I know that this, you know, is being broadcast, so I want to be careful, but we have a missionary not too far from here that is going to a group of people in that particular nation that that nation is trying to extinguish. And they're seeing people come to know Christ. That's amazing. You know, and, that, and, and so I think that um, when we look at what is God doing, well, well, God's doing the same thing he's always been doing. He's calling his people to worship him. Right? And we, we can't worry about the fate of nations because we serve the king of kings. That's our confidence. Our confidence is not in the fate of nations. Our confidence is the king who stands in the midst right, of fools and stupid people and enemies and is exalted on high by his people. That's what we see in the middle of this psalm. We see that he is exalted 
but the wicked are judged. Why is he standing in the midst? He's standing in judgment, for they are like chaff that are blown away in the wind. You know, we can apply this by thinking about our own lives. We think sometimes that sin is the path to joy. But we know that God's promised judgment is going to fall. God's promised judgment is going to fall. It falls even in our own lives. And so we need to think about that. We need to think about that in the confession of sins. And we need to remind ourselves that if we are in Christ, sins past, present, and future have been judged. There's no more punishment for sins for those who are in Christ. Jesus paid it all. All. So we, are, we live as sons of the king, not condemned. Now that ought to do two things. That ought to cause our heart to rejoice, but it also ought to help us understand our sin so that we sin less. God is exalted. He's exalted in the midst of the wicked who will be blown away like chaff in the wind. God is exalted next for he is the anointed triumphant horn. His works are described in 4 to 5. Those works are central in verses 10 and 11. Psalm 92 employs terms that um, are familiar to the scriptures. Um, to, to, to 1 Samuel in particular, chapter 2, verse 10, where Hannah praises God because God would exalt the horn of his anointed. Listen um, to this particular passage. So it's importing this prayer of Hannah, the words of the prayer of Hannah. In, in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 10 says, The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken into pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to the king and exalt the horn of his anointed. So the horn is, you think about the anointing horn with oil. And, and we oftentimes see this horn is, is that the king is symbolized or those in power are symbolized by horns. It's the anointing oil. And the anointing oil here on, in this psalm is on the psalmist's head. It, it, you think about this horn. He talks about the wild ox. Um, it is the wild ox that establishes his, um, his place in the herd at the front of the herd. And how does he do it? The wild ox establishes it with what? His horns. That's how he does it. You've all watched Animal Planet. You've seen that. Um, he establishes dominance. Numbers chapter 23, verses 22 says, God brings them out of Egypt and is for them like the horns of the wild ox. What did God do to Egypt? He smashed them and he is dominant. He is God. He is Lord over all other lords, over all other gods. Psalm 24, verses 8 through 10 says, Who is this king of glory, the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle, lift up your heads, O gates, lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. The psalmist that we exalt on Sunday is the one that smashes all of his enemies. God's mighty works Make our hearts glad, for the Lord exalts his horn. He anoints the one 
who has victory and conquers all with oil, and this gives him victory over his enemies, and we are in Christ. Therefore, we do not need to worry. You're in Christ. You have no worries. It's not akuna matata. It's praise Jesus. That's what it is. Praise Jesus. Our security and our hope is in Jesus Christ and nothing else. The question that you have to ask yourself is, is this your God? Is he the one that smashes all of your fears? Is, is he the one that, you know, can, can you tell other people, listen, you know, the reason that you're worried about all of these things and the reason that you don't believe these things is because you don't believe in Jesus. Isn't that what Jesus said? The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. Bottom line. Well, can you give me some reasons? No. I'm not going to. I mean, you can. right? The Bible says that we should give reason for the hope that's in us, yes. But sometimes people don't want reasons. They want you to give them reasons so they can go, nah. You got another one? Nah. You got another one? So sometimes we just have to give them the narrative of Scripture. God is God. He's God of gods, he's king of kings, he's lord of lords, that ends it. Bottom line, repent and believe the good news. Then we can continue the conversation. <laughs> now be wise with utilizing that. <laughs> but, but sometimes that is it. That's all you need. And listen, that's all you need. Right? That's all you need. You know, sometimes we, when we get into conversations with people, we feel like we don't have the right words. That is here, right here. The right words are right here. That's all you need to tell people. Jesus is God. He's King of Kings. He's Lord of Lords. He came. He occupied human flesh. He continues in human flesh. He was righteous. He died. He lives again. He ascended into heaven. Believe in him for the forgiveness of sins or he's coming back to judge and condemn all those that are not in him. That's the story. If you've got that, you've got enough. And you call people to repent and believe the good news. They may think you're crazy and that's okay. Love them. Bless them. Tell them that they should relax on Sundays like Chick-fil-A. Because it's good for them. And it's good for them because we exalt Jesus on Sundays. That's all we need. And that's what the psalmist is saying. Finally, finally we see that God is exalted by God's people flourishing in worship. Notice here it says, and the righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like the cedars in Lebanon. Right? Trees planted by rivers of water. Where in Psalm 1 is the river of water? Ezekiel says in his eschatological vision in, that he describes water flowing out of where? The temple that covers, it's living water. And Jesus said what? I'm the living water. If you drink of me, right, you'll never thirst. Where are these trees planted? They're planted at the source of living water. These trees are planted in the temple. You know, you've perhaps seen a menorah that celebrates the Feast of Lights. There was the lampstand. The lampstand in tabernacle and temple was fashioned after the tree of life. That's why you see menorahs 
that look that way. If you look at one and has the eight candles, it, all, it usually always looks like a tree. Right? That's, that's this. That's the imagery here. That God's people, if they're God's people, are planted in the place of worship. Drink up, people. You're here. Drink up. You're planted. You're planted in worship in the place that the Spirit of God meets with you. It says they are planted where? In the house of the Lord. And they flourish in the courts of our God. Human flourishing begins in the worship of God. It doesn't begin with economics or politics. All of those things are an outflow of the good law of God. All of those things flourish. Humanity flourishes in all of those ways, in science and art and economics and politics, because people worship God. If they don't worship God, it will not flourish. They are planted in the courts of God. And then notice this. This is good for the old guys like me. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green. Right? I like that description. And notice here it says, here's what, the, here's what, here's what happened. This is, Hebrews talks about perseverance and the perseverance of the saints. Here's, what, here's a great vision for the rest of your life. Right? Especially... You know, when you get to the place where you feel you, you have no function, right? You're, you're there. We all know people that have very little function. Here's what God says, that the Christian who's at the end of life, who has really lost a lot of abilities that they did, and, and oftentimes in, in, that, in those days, people are struggling with the issue of death and purpose. What do you have me here for? Isn't it wonderful that God just tells us? Look what he says. To declare. You're here now, even if you're young people, but even you older people, you're here to do one thing. Declare and declare three things in that declaration. One, that God is good. He's upright. Right? So to your dying breath, you just keep saying, God is good. Oh, God is good. Let me tell you about how God is good. Let me tell you about the goodness of God. I, um, I guess I have to say this. Um, before I tell you this, I was like, oh, I shouldn't say it that way. Um, I'm not struggling with a narcotics addiction, but I was at Narcotics Anonymous recently. And, um, you know, it's really interesting to hear the stories you know, and, and it's, it's, it's like church in, in, in some ways. It's not church, but it's like church to hear people say, you know, this is what I was like until I was rescued. I was enslaved till I was rescued. You know, that's our story. That's our story. I even got music, like psalm music going on there. <laughs> it's, our, it's our story. God is so good. Don't you love hearing testimonies? Right? I would encourage you, if you don't already, in your small groups, to just take some time and say, hey, do we have some volunteers? Let's hear how you came to know Christ as Savior. And what you're saying is God is good. Keep repeating that story over and over and over again. That's your story. It's, it's God's story. It's the story of the Bible. God is good. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was a slave, but now I'm free. Sometimes you have to tell yourself that story. 
Preach to yourself and remind yourself that God is good. The, the second thing that you declare is that he's a rock. There is this life that is worth building upon, right? That's who God is. He's a rock. He's the rock of our salvation. And then finally, notice, um, it echoes Exodus. Um, finally, that he is just, that he's just. There's no unrighteousness in him. There is judgment. There's salvation through judgment. Um, God is good. And let me encourage you with these words. And, and to get you to think about how do you do Sabbath? Now, now, it's easy to say, okay, what are the things that I need to do but keep in front of you that the purpose of Sabbath is the exaltation of God? It's the exaltation of Jesus. It's not enough, I don't think, for you to, to yourself say, well, what are the practices? What are the, what are the things that I'm going to do and not do um, that shape this day unto the Lord? I think you need to look to the Bible, and we haven't said all the things that could be said about Sabbath. The Bible says all the things that need to be said about Sabbath. So dig deep and figure out what the Bible says. But it's not enough for you to do it alone or even as a family. Sabbath is meant to be practiced in the company of believers. And so maybe this is a discussion for a few of friends as you get together. Say, what are we doing to exalt Jesus together? You know, how can we um, create obedience around the things that God says in his word so that Jesus is lifted high, he's exalted, that we experience the goodness of exalting him so that we are wise unto life and know how to live, that we are refreshed physically, spiritually, emotionally, mentally as we move into a new week because we have spent time with exalting God with each other. Uh, think about these things. If we need to repent, repent. God covers our sin and be obedient to his word. Do not harden your hearts. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that you have fed us this morning and you will continue to feed us as we go to your table. Uh, we thank you that you give us these good commands um, and that you, through these songs, we, we see how wise it is and how beautiful it is to exalt you for you are worthy. You're worthy of our praise. And so we pray that it would be that we would exalt you um, for today and even for um, generations to come, that we would form and shape habits of exaltation of Jesus. Lord, help us never to be caught into the habits um, that become our works, for we are to celebrate your work by resting. So protect us from our own devices, um, even as we think about making you the center and focus of attention as you have called us and commanded us. In your name we pray. Amen.